Well, we are continuing in this study of a letter that Paul wrote to a group of people known as the Romans. It's recorded in the New Testament. We're trying to discover, like, why did the Holy Spirit inspire Paul to write these words to that group of people? But also, we're trying to identify what we can learn as we have a relationship with God even today. Over the first five chapters, Paul is very specifically trying to unpack what the gospel is all about. And he's been answering a series of questions that he actually poses to himself. And these are regarding the, the truth of the gospel, specifically its implications. And today we're going to look at a couple of these questions. But before we do, I think it'd be really important for us just to anchor ourselves in what God, what God has already revealed through Paul about the gospel. Paul begins by declaring in Romans 1 verse 17 that there is now a righteousness that has been revealed by God and it's through faith. Now this is good news for everybody that was part of the church at Rome. There were people who were Jewish there and they thought that they were God's people and because the Old Testament law had come to them and because of their heritage, they had an advantage. There's also a group of people there, the Gentiles, who really had no interest in the things of God. They were too busy worshiping so many other things and living their best life, so they thought, right? Well, Paul says that this good news is for both groups of people. It's for everyone. And then he makes a long list of things in Romans 1 and 2 that all of us have done that show that we have fallen short of God's glory by making created things into the object of where we find our meaning and purpose, even our joy and satisfaction, finding it in those things instead of in our creator. Because we have all done this, we are all deserving of God's wrath. And God's wrath is actually part of his righteousness. It was because of his righteousness that he couldn't turn a blind eye to all the things that you and I have done. And so we stand before him condemned. Paul addresses that any one of us should be very careful not to judge someone else. He stresses that there's no one righteous, there's no one who understands, there's no one who seeks God. There is, therefore, all of us who stand condemned in our sin. The Old Testament law helped us realize that we're really incapable of fulfilling all that God directs and has designed us for. And so much that it provided a way to deal with our sin and to seek forgiveness. Paul then turns a corner in chapter three and he begins by proclaiming the good news of the gospel and showing why it is such good news. Look what he wrote to the Romans in chapter three. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. This is something that God had planned from the very beginning, even before Adam and Eve sinned. When they did God promised that there would be one who would come who would stomp on the head of the serpent. And after Adam and Eve sinned, God made clothing for them to cover their nakedness out of the skins of animals. 
All that we should see as a foreshadowing to God then sending Jesus to bring about the righteousness for all of us through his sacrifice on the cross. In chapter four, Paul addresses how this righteousness comes about by faith, not by works. And he points to Abraham as a great example of this type of faith. He stresses that this type of faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. It was not his circumcision. That circumcision was actually a seal of the righteousness that existed by faith. And Paul points to this faith that lived in Abraham. It was the kind of faith that caused Abraham to leave his homeland and his family and go to a place that he had never been before and he didn't even know where he was going when God sent him. It was the kind of faith that Abraham believed that he would be the father of many nations, even though by the age of 99, he had this many children. It was that same faith that caused Abraham to take that one son that eventually came to him named Isaac up to a place called Mount Moriah and to sacrifice him on an altar because God told him. Good news for Abraham and for Isaac, God interrupted that plan and provided a ram in the thicket to be a substitute for Isaac not having to die. We should see in that moment more foreshadowing. Abraham demonstrated a faith and a trust in who God is, in the covenant that God had established between them, as well as taking at face value all the promises that God had made to him. Paul writes about that in Romans chapter four. He says this, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. That is why it was credited to him as righteousness. This, these words, it was credited to him, were written not just for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Paul makes it very clear that Abraham is an example for all of us, both Jew and Gentiles, circumcised and uncircumcised, for all people. And how to that we may become, uh, that how we might be made righteous through faith, not through an uh, heritage or even adherence to the Old Testament law. Paul challenged the Jews who thought that because they were Jewish, they were God's people, they had the Old Testament law, they had sacrificed for uh, their sins, and so that kind of sealed the deal for them. They were good with God and nobody else was included, so they thought. Paul opens chapter five with a very powerful statement of reality. Look what he says. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace by which we now stand. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Andrew Bondrit last weekend did a great job kind of unpacking some of these big church words like justification or reconciliation or atonement for sin. In fact, if you picked up one of the journals that we were encouraging you to pick up on page 56, the author does a great job just walking through, once again, some very user-friendly definitions of these really big terms. Paul, throughout the book of Romans, just keeps putting back in front of us over and over this good news of the gospel, revealing it's who God is, that he wanted to have a relationship with us so much that he dealt with our sin by sending his son here to earth to show us how to have a relationship with him, but to die a sacrificial death for our sins so that you and I could have his righteousness. And all that is to motivate us to pursue God and also to participate in his mission of taking that same good news to the world around us. Paul clarifies that just as sin and death entered the world through one man, So the grace of God comes to the world for all people through one man, and that one man is Jesus. People sinned before the law was given. They just did that by simply disobeying God. And after the law was given, it was even more obvious that we were incapable of fulfilling God's design and instructions for us, and we all stand condemned before him in our sin. So God sent Jesus to show us grace, and to provide righteousness for us through Jesus. Paul writes that in Romans 5. He says God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that, my friends, is a lot to take in and grasp. Many have accused Paul of a diatribe. You might not be familiar with that word diatribe, but you probably experienced it. It's when your spouse or your parent or your boss asks you a question and then answers the question for you by going over and over and over some things that they want you to know and not miss. And they say it over and over and over and over again so that you'll understand it and not miss it. Now, the picture I've just painted of a diatribe is really negative, right? But actually, a diatribe is a useful literary term and tool that Paul uses all throughout the book of Romans. He asks a question, he answers that question, and he goes over and over the answer so that none of us miss it. He doesn't want us just to understand the gospel, though. He wants us to experience the gospel. It's really good news. The reality is that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, we all, outside of a relationship with Jesus, fit into the same category, sinners in need of grace. And God, in his holiness, in his justice, in his compassion, in his mercy, offers us this grace through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. We've been saved and set apart for God's glory and his purposes. 
I hope that that'll all just sink in deep to your heart today. In fact, many of the songs we sang earlier are there to just continue to impart in us these same biblical truths. Then we get to chapter six, and Paul takes a big turn. I'd like for you to turn with me to chapter six if you have a copy of the Bible with you, or you can use the one in the seat back in front of you or on your electronic device. Paul begins chapter six in verse one by asking a question that someone might pose. It's like this. If it doesn't matter who I am and it doesn't matter what I've done, if the fact is that the more I sin, the more grace I get, isn't it just a fact that I should just keep on sinning? Actually, the more modern question we might ask is, can I keep on sinning? And Paul answers that question. I like to send a lot of text. And a lot of times in my text, I like to use those graphics that uh, you can use. Some people call them GIFs. Some people call them GIFs. You can call it whatever you want, but you know what I'm talking about, right? I wonder if someone would have texted Paul this question about sinning so that grace may increase. I wonder which one of these he would have sent back. You get the point? Paul uses the same word 14 times. It's translated several different ways in our English language, like never, certainly not, not at all, let it not happen. Those pictures kind of draw us the same conclusion, right? Paul uses this same phrase to say no. He says, that question is kind of born out of ignorance because the people who are hearing this for the first time, they were new converts to following Jesus in Rome. They were trying to grasp just who Jesus was. They were trying to get their arms around this idea that now a righteousness doesn't come from the law. It now comes from faith. We, we need to be a little more sympathetic to this audience. But Paul wants them to not miss this good news. He says... It's not going to happen that if we don't follow the law, people just go crazy and do whatever they want because something dramatically happened, Paul said. We have died to sin. Look what he says in verse 6. You can read with me continuing, or verse 2 of chapter 6. He writes this. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live to it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. When we all realize that all that God has done for us through Jesus and we make a decision to receive the grace God has given us by placing our faith in Jesus as Savior and making him our Lord, something happens. We die and we're resurrected. We're united with Jesus in his death as well as in his resurrection. Our identifying with Jesus happens through placing our faith in him. That happens in our hearts. And it's demonstrated in our actions. One of the most immediate actions that we see in the New Testament when people place their faith and trust in Jesus is that they were baptized. Baptism is an outward expression of what's going on on the inside of us. A good analogy might be to wear a wedding ring. Wearing a wedding ring does not make you any more married than getting dunked in water makes you a follower of Jesus. 
I wear a wedding ring to show everybody who sees it that I have made a commitment to Christy, to love her, to cherish her, to honor and keep her in sickness and in health, for good or for bad, for better or for worse, until death does us part, so help me God. A person who's baptized does that to say that they understand all that God has done for them and they want to live the rest of their life in response to that. There are many forms of baptism in our world today, but when you read the New Testament, there's actually only one form of baptism, and that form is immersion. The actual word translated baptism means immerse or to dip under. But the significance is actually in our identification with Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. When a person is baptized, they are lowered into the water. They are dying to themselves. They are putting to death their life of sin. They are identifying with Jesus' death on the cross. They are lowered into a watery grave, just like Jesus was put into the tomb for three days. Now, we don't leave them under for those three days or till the bubble stops, right? We actually bring them back out of the water. Why? To signify and to identify with Jesus' resurrection. They are now a living person raised to life to live differently than they ever have before. All this is beautiful symbolism that displays our identification and union with Jesus. And it should change how we live our life from that point forward. Continue to look at what Paul says about this in verse 5. For if we've been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, that might be something to circle, to highlight, to put some bold by. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under law, you are under grace. When you and I unite ourselves with Jesus through faith, the power of sin in our life is rendered powerless. We are made righteous from sin. Have you ever watched your dog and then watched him go and drop himself in a huge mud puddle right after? Paul says that shouldn't happen, right? You should live differently because of what Jesus has done for us. We're free from the control that sin had on our lives. And we now live differently. We're controlled by righteousness instead of sin. And Paul lists four active imperatives that direct how we should then live. And the first one is this. We should count ourselves dead to sin 
but alive to God. This may be best fleshed out by asking ourselves some questions like, what are you living for? What is most important to you? What drives your behavior? Is it the things of God or is it the things of this world? Are the desires and actions you have glorifying to God or do they just fulfill your sinful nature and pleasures? Have you put to death the sins that you asked God to forgive you for or did you just get dumped? Paul says you must count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God. And then the next one builds upon that. He says, don't let sin reign or obey its evil desires. Last weekend, several of us from here on the staff and our elders had a retreat. We call it the vision and strategy retreat, where we try to answer two questions. Where are we as a congregation and where are we going in the next year? We had some very honest conversation about where we are. And we felt the Holy Spirit prompting our hearts in unity toward where he wants us to go in the next 12 months. We did a lot of work, a lot of conversation, a lot of dialogue, but we also tried to have some fun together just to build some camaraderie. And one of the optional activities was to play pickleball as a group. Pickleball is the fastest growing sport in our country. I've never played pickleball in my entire life until last Friday evening. We didn't start playing until about 11.45 p.m. and we finished about 1.30 a.m. And it was during that time where I very visibly saw a part of Phil Heller I don't like to see. I'll be honest, we started the day with a little ribbing. So like, you know, who's playing pickleball, you know, and making some name calls back and forth. And as it got closer, especially the late hour, one of the men said, I don't think I'm going to play. It's kind of late. To which we said, maybe there's room in the girl's dorm for you tonight. Okay. Just kind of gives you the tenor of how the conversation was going. It was probably because I'm not much of an athlete that as we were playing, especially an unfamiliar sport, I didn't know all the rules. I found myself just getting frustrated. And that frustration quickly turned to agitation. And that agitation quickly turned to competitiveness. It started getting chippy. And I just became a person that I never really ever want to be. The competitive just got a hold of me. I thought things. I mumbled things. I acted in ways that I am not proud of to this day. It required me to take a walk of shame the next morning and actually ask for forgiveness from some of those I was playing. Now, just to be clear, I didn't say any bad words or punch anybody. I don't want you to go too crazy in your imagination. But you know what? I've seen that side of me before. I'm not happy to admit it, but I'm guessing I'm not alone. You have a story like that? A moment where you've just embarrassed yourself, where something, whether it was your need to be right, your need to win, your need to be uh, included, your need to dominate, whatever that need was that was so deep inside of you that it caused you to act and behave and to be motivated in all the wrong ways. See, my friends, there is this battle that's happening inside of us, and I don't want anyone to be scared here today. If you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, the victory has been won. Jesus has taken away every sin you've ever committed and all the sin you will commit. He nailed it to the cross. It is gone. It is finished. But you also need to be aware 
that sin will wreak havoc in your life. It will try to destroy you in many ways. You are protected by the blood of Christ. But Paul makes it very clear that we must not let sin reign in our mortal life. Come back next week and we'll have a front row seat to Paul's own challenges of dealing with sin. And this is after he knew Jesus as Savior and Lord. It seems to be that you and I have some opportunity to let sin sneak in and destroy us and cause us to do things that don't honor God, that don't live out his purposes for life. And I don't want you to be naive. Don't be scared, but don't be naive either. Paul says, put to death the evil in your life. Live for God. He says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Who's holding the reins in your life? Who's holding the reins to what you think or how you behave or your desires? I don't think any of us need a a lecture on what it looks like for evil or sin to have the reins, right? We've got that picture, but sometimes we are not real sure what it looks like for that godly nature to be in control of our life. How do we feed that godly nature? Because the old adage is true, garbage in is garbage out. How do you feed that godly nature? Well, it was David who said, I've hidden your word in my heart so I wouldn't sin against you, God. That's why we offered a reading plan to go through the book of Romans together. Not so you just hear it on Sunday morning, but you would engage in God's word. You would feed yourself through the power of the Holy Spirit. God's word would get in you so it would come out of you, right? That's also why we chose 30 days that you didn't have to go through chronologically, right? We're only on chapter six. It's not too late. Start reading God's word every day, not just when we're together here on Sundays. You want to continue to feed that godly nature in your life? Well, surround yourself with people who are headed the same direction, who will hold you accountable, who will speak truth into your life, who will encourage the growth that they see through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we filled the atrium that last two weeks to give you an opportunity to, to connect to a place where, you're, where, where you will grow. It's not too late. You can still sign up today. And you know what? One of the things that will feed that godly nature in you the most is probably by trying to be like Jesus as much as possible by serving like him, by extending yourself and releasing your grimy fingers off of your time, your money, your opportunities, because they really don't belong to you in the first place. Those three things should sound really familiar to you, like being with God, being with others, being sent. Those are things that we know will help all of us live and love like Jesus more. They will feed the godly nature in our lives, and we as a congregation are trying to resource you in ways that will help you lean into all three of those. Don't let sin reign in your life, Paul says. The next thing he says is don't offer any part of your body to sin. When I was a little kid, one of the delicacies that I enjoyed was soda in a bottle. That's how it came when I was younger. That might blow some of the minds of those who are younger than me, but you would go to a machine, you'd put in maybe a dime at the time, and you would drop off this, drop off this bottle of soda. And sure enough, that little dime would burn a hole in my pocket until I could spend it on a, on a soda bottle, right? And sure enough, as soon as I got that bottle, the machine didn't have an opener on it. And so there I was with this pop bottle filled with yummy soda that I couldn't open. 
I'd climb into the backseat of my parents' 1977 Chevy Impala. Not the cool kind, the family version, okay? I don't want you to get the wrong idea. And there I was in the backseat trying to take the seat belt to use and open that stupid pop lid bottle that wouldn't open. An experience of sure frustration. Why? Well, because seat belts were never designed to open soda bottles, right? They were designed to restrain you in case of an accident. Let me be very clear. All of us were created for a very specific purpose. That was to glorify and honor God. And when we use any part of our body, whether it be our eyes or our hands or our feet or our heart or our mind, for any other purpose, it is an experience of pure frustration. And it's also sin. That's why Paul tells us not to do it. Don't offer any part of your body to sin. Offer every part of your body to God. We offer our parts towards sin when we think that sex is just for our pleasure and our purposes, when we spread gossip or when we lie, when we disrespect our parents or maybe it's even our boss or person of authority. It's when we focus our hearts and minds on anything that this world offers instead of God and the things of heaven. Paul wrote to the Corinthians this same instruction. He says, don't you know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, who you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Paul says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Don't let sin reign in your body. Don't offer any part of your body to sin. He says, offer yourselves to God. The rest of chapter six, Paul uses an analogy to show us exactly what it looks like to offer ourselves to God. And he says, you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. Let's finish the chapter as he begins in verse 15. Paul says, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Hear the same question? See the diatribe? He answers the exact same way, by no means. He says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as an obedient slave, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you're a slave to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that is that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. Paul says, I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to, you just because, just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? He said, how'd that work out for you, is basically what he said. Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Slavery in the first century was very prolific. In fact, many estimate that the majority of the population of Rome were slaves. 
Slavery then had uh, some differences than what we know of slavery in our current or in our culture historically. One of those unique aspects was the practice of voluntary slavery. It's when a person would offer themselves to someone else to be enslaved, often for the purpose of welfare. They did not have means or opportunity to care for themselves, so they enslaved themselves to someone else. It could be to repay indebtedness. This was not the same of being forced as slaves as a, a victor over some military conquest or victimizing people through slavery. It was quite different. That's why Paul uses this visual of slavery to say that you were once enslaved to sin. You actually chose that yourself. But now you are to be enslaved to righteousness. And he says, this analogy breaks down a little bit. Slavery free, now slaves again. But I think you get his point. In fact, at the very beginning of Romans, Paul identifies himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. This is a very powerful picture of what it looks like to be dead to sin, but now alive to God. And it's the ultimate result of God's gracious initiative and work in joining us with Jesus and bringing about this new life. But Paul makes it very clear that we must choose to live out this new life. We must actively commit ourselves to this life that we're called to live on when placing our faith and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. It involves both God's sovereign grace and work in our lives, as well as our obedient response to it. It's what the gospel is really all about. And it's for everyone. And that should be good news, especially for someone here today who may have never grasped this yet. You need to know that God loves you. In his holiness and compassion and grace and mercy, he wanted a relationship with you so much that he was willing to deal with your sin by exchanging his one and only son for you so that you could be his child. He sent Jesus here to show us how to have a relationship with God, but also to die a sacrificial death on the cross so that your sins and mine could be done away with. And so that we would be motivated by that kind of love to pursue him and also to participate in his mission of taking this good news that's changed us from the inside out to the whole world. I wonder if you've responded to all that God has done for you. I wonder if you've allowed that truth to sink not just into your head, but deep into your heart and begin to change who you are from the inside out. I wonder if you've responded in such a way out of appreciation and love for all that God has done for you, that he now has complete control in your life, that you are dead to sin and alive to God, and it's being proved by the way that you are living, the things that you are desiring, the things that you think, and that the things that consume you are all motivated out of how much God loves you. Maybe you're here today and you're ready. Maybe you're ready to respond to all that God has done for you and the power of the gospel that you've heard maybe for the first time today or for the hundredth time. Well, I want you to know that I love to talk with you about how you can commit your life to following Jesus Christ and experience all that I've described to you for real in your life personally. 
just a few moments. I'm going to pray. I'd love to meet you right down front. I'll take as much time as, I, as you need just to understand what God is doing on your behalf and how to respond to it. That might feel a little intimidating for some of you, and so I would just encourage you to pull out your phone right now, and you can text the word now to 812-858-868. Myself or one of my teammates will follow up with you and have that exact same conversation if that just seems to be a little more comfortable for you. I also wonder if you're here today, and maybe you've seen many people be baptized, or maybe you've heard today the the importance of baptism, maybe for, uh, uh, for real this time, and you're ready to respond to that. I want you to know we're always ready. We're always prepared to help a person take that step in their life. We have baptisms that happen on Sunday morning, on all kinds of days throughout the week, whenever that time is right for you. I'll be happy to meet you up front right now this morning to help facilitate that baptism. But also, I thought it might just be uh, more comfortable for some just to have a little less formal and a little less in front of people opportunity. And so a couple of my teammates and I are gonna come back this afternoon just at 2 p.m. We're just gonna be standing right here in front of the baptistry. And if you wanna take this step of identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection through baptism, I'd love to facilitate with that for you today. You don't have to sign up, just show up. We have everything that you need. And feel free to bring anybody with you that you'd like to share that moment with. Would you pray with me? God, as I think about all that the gospel is, I think the only words that seem appropriate are thank you. Thank you for loving us that much. Thanks for wanting a relationship with us so much that you gave Jesus to have us. Thank you for pursuing us in love. Thank you for describing what it looks like to live in relationship with you. Thank you for giving us instruction from your word to teach us how to live in response to that. And God, I know thank you can come real cheap. It's a lot easier to say, but God, it's a lot harder to show. So my prayer for my life and for all who hear my voice today, God, I pray that our actions would follow our words. That God, by the way that we live and by the way that we love, by the things that motivate us, the desires that we pursue, the words that come out of our mouth, the thoughts we have in our mind, the actions that come out of our hands and feet, Lord, everything about us would be a demonstration of how much we appreciate all that you have done for us. That we would live in a way that would be dead to sin. It would no longer be our master, but you would be our Lord. And our lives would demonstrate that. That we'd be dead to sin, but alive to God through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's to that end I pray right now. Amen. Have a great day.